Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. So you're uh, you're flying out Thursday. Uh, am I allowed to ask what what your topic is for NADSM? Is that or is that a? Yeah. So I'm gonna. So it's interesting. So tonight I'm talking about the eight steps to yes, and we're talking about, of course, those eight slides. But um, on Saturday I'm talking about the ten studies, the ten scientific studies that I use to help change physicians' thinking about oral appliance therapy. Um, hmm. Today we've got so much more data and science behind oral appliance therapy, behind precision oral appliance therapy, you know, that uh, it's it's compelling and convincing. And it's so funny. I just treated a an ENT. Um, okay. And what day is today? Uh, Friday, last Friday. I treated an ENT yeah. last Friday. And when he was in my chair, it was quiz city, man. He wanted to know anything and everything. I was treating him and his wife. And the conversation was... It, Denise was, her eyes were glazing over because I was just talking about the science, the literature, the studies, but he was eating it all up like candy. And that's what physicians want to hear. Mm. Yeah, I, I have found, um, I was talking to a, a medical doctor back when I got my surgery and mm -hmm. I wish you guys had published your studies a couple years earlier because I was telling him stats about efficacy that we have internally because we've interpreted I, well, last time I ran an analysis talking about reports like earlier, um, back, I think it was three years ago, we had interpreted some out over 5,000 studies um, wow. and awesome. we had really amazing data. I mean, we know qualitatively that we've got 70% of patients are in that mild to moderate category, 90, at, I couldn't put this anywhere. Like it's not on our website because it just looks inflated. But at the time, 97% of patients we interpreted for were all diagnosed with sub-level sleep disorder. And it's yeah. like, and, and so when we look at that, it's like, yeah. This is why you need help. This is why the dental community is here. And it's just like, and 70% are in a prime range to do an appliance that works. Yep. And when you think of the, like the stop bang, for example, it's, it's about 92% accurate at predicting whether or not the patient, if they meet four of the criteria is going to be uh, test positive for obstructive sleep apnea. So it's, it's a really good screening tool. You know, there's no question about it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from a treatment perspective, when, when we look at something like CPAP, which works so well, but isn't worn so well, and then yep. you look at something like oral appliances, which used to be moderately good efficacy, but had really much better uh, adherence. Now, instead of moderately good efficacy, it's on par with CPAP. Um, yes. Independent, peer-reviewed studies, you know, not, not Prasama studies, not done by Prasama. That's what I think is kind of cool. So yep. that's, uh, that's the power of that data. So as a cool. data nerd, I love talking about that stuff. So. It's all good. Yeah. Well, um, we've got folks jumping on. Uh, we've got lots of folks, a lot of which I recognize. So welcome <laughs> on to the webinar tonight, everyone. Why don't you say hello in the chat? Tell us where you're from. And um, also tell us what you're most excited to get out of tonight. We are, um, we're going to touch on one of the topics that I think I regularly get clients, coaching clients asking about how do we increase case acceptance? And we get to actually, um, work with you know one of the gurus one of the experts one of the masters of the industry uh on on how he does it would you, so, would you call my wife and my friends and tell them i'm a guru and a master and i'm the guy that shows <laughs> the snow and takes out the garbage here so yeah um i we do have a, one question already ben sutter asked do we have links to those studies uh ben we've got access to those studies here to waking to sleep we've got a little call um, at the end, a uh, link to a call, schedule a call. We'll get the list of the studies you want, and we'll send you those links. Um, yeah. That call there. 
Yeah, I've got uh, literally a few dozen studies uh, we've got in our database. Your, your rep can get you access to any of those. Um, if they, and if you can't get a hold of your rep, I'm happy to help with that. No question, no problem. Cool. Well, guys, um, let me hit some disclaimers real quick while we still got people jumping on uh, and we'll get right into the presentation. As a reminder, there is a beautiful little Q&A button at the bottom of the page. Uh, that Q&A button is for your questions so that we can answer them. Please put your questions there when possible. It'll make sure that we don't miss your question in the chat. Uh, additionally, this is a CE webinar. And so at the end of the night, we will put a CE link in the chat. Um, this may come as a surprise. Unfortunately, we, you do have to be here for the webinar to get a CE. Uh, that's not my rule. That's PACE. Okay. That's their, that's their whole rule in there. Uh, so we'll put that in the chat at the end of the evening. And at the end of the night, if you are here, we will be emailing you a copy of Mark Murphy's eight slides. Now he does have more than eight tonight, but you're going to get the eight slides he actually shows to his patients. Um, one last piece before I give you know, a, a quick bio on uh, Mark, uh, Dr. Murphy. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, uh, Prosomnus, Kettenbach, Sleep Apnea Leads, Better Night, Nearman Practice Management, uh, and, and just the, the entire group of folks here. We really appreciate being able to provide this free education uh, for everyone and just being able to, to share a really a necessary piece for making a difference in community. So thank you guys. Um, also, Dental Sleep Profits, can't leave them out if you guys are looking for Facebook marketing. But uh, last but not least, uh, we've got Dr. Mark Murphy on. Um, Mark Murphy is a DSM veteran of 25 years. Uh, he is the head of clinical faculty for Prosomnus and one of the pioneers in developing what we like to call precision oral appliance therapy. And probably my favorite part about his professional background is that he is not just an academic. He is a practicing dental sleep medicine provider. So when he talks about selling cases and helping patients get into therapy, he does it. He still practices I believe every week, um, and is, uh, is helping patients, you know, in the chair today. So, uh, Mark, I think we're ready. Uh, if you want to get started. Yeah. Thank you, Chad. So every week, meaning maybe 45, 47 weeks a year, you know, travel allowing that kind of thing. Uh, and then, uh, I, I loved it. I got a little nervous when you said pioneer, cause I'm thinking of who the real pioneers were, but pioneer precision oral appliance therapy that I'm, that I'm good with. Um, that, that was fine. So yeah, I think that's appropriate. So thanks. It's, and it's great to have so many people, um, wanting to come in and, and hear about this. And I'm certainly happy to share those slides. I'm happy to, I'm happy to share all the slides I've got here tonight. Pretty much anything I've got that I do lecture or teach on, I, I'll send those out to anybody that ever not wants them. So we've got about an hour and, and my biggest mistake I make so often is filling the entire hour. So I'm going to try and get through this data so we can answer questions that pop up because I always feel like I'm rushing on some of the questions or I'm up till nine o'clock, 9.30 at night trying to answer them. So we'll try and get to them a little faster. Eight steps to yes. Eight steps to yes. It's a play on words because there's eight slides I use. And, and we can think of those as steps. We can think of those constructs. We can do anything we want with those. But I use these eight slides with, I, I want to say every patient. We send them to every patient for the consult. I review them with most of the patients. Certainly, I review them with all of the patients who listen to this language, don't get concerned, but any of the patients that I need to close from a sales perspective, close into a test, and then certainly close and prep them to close into an appliance later on if their test comes back positive. Sometimes I don't have to go through as much of the depth with those because probably half my patients, maybe 60%, come from sleep physicians and they come in 
already diagnosed, already with a letter of medical necessity, they already have a prescription and they're ready to go. So for them, I, I asked them, I'll say, Denise sent you those slides. Did you have any questions about those? Did you get a chance to look at those? They kind of describe what we're gonna do. And you know, so I talked through that a little bit. And some of them fire up a conversation we haven't, and some of them don't. But with any of the other patients, this is a great way to get more people to yes. No question about it. Outline for tonight, pretty simple. We're gonna talk about the patient pathway. How patients process information in their decision-making process, how they move from unaware to aware, to interested, to coming to trust you, to going ahead and saying yes. We're gonna talk about what are the things that they're asking and thinking about in their mind that help them formulate a decision. And then we wanna answer those questions. That's where the eight slides come in. I wanna answer all those questions for them before they ask them. I want those questions answered in their mind so that they know this is the right path. They know that I'm the right person. They know this is the right treatment. They know this is the right medically necessary treatment for them. And then listen to this next word, assumptive close. Hmm, you're going to buy. That sounds like a salesy thing. So it's not very salesy because when you think of salesy, we just bought a new car the other day and it was very much transactional. Cars are very similar. You buy that same, we bought a, a new Chrysler Pacifica minivan, dead sexy car. Uh, my wife says it's got everything you ever wanted in a vehicle except for status. And I think she's right. But that car um, would be the same car at this dealership, that dealership, that dealership, this dealership, all the same car. Maybe a little different buying experience, maybe a different little different service experience. Maybe they would take better care of me. But looking at the car, it's a commodity. It's a very expensive commodity. It's a $50,000 commodity, but it's a commodity nonetheless. So there's very much a transactional kind of relationship in that purchase. That's not the case in medicine. In medicine, a physician is talking to you, a PA is talking to you, a nurse practitioner, a caregiver, a provider is talking to you about your disease and what's medically necessary to treat that. Now, listen to that term, medically necessary. Do not remember that your typical medical office visit starts with uh, we're going to draw some blood today, take a chest x-ray, run some tests. We'll look at an x-ray, we'll do an MRI, whatever they say. And unlike dentistry, there's not a conversation about co-payments, deductibles, down payments, how much it's going to cost. Very different environment because the assumption is you want to live. And this disease, hypertension, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, tumors, cancer, obstructive sleep apnea can kill you. And so there's an assumption that you're going to treat this disease. It's not always true, but it is true so much more often in medicine than it is in dentistry that I would argue we need to think like medicine when we talk about dental sleep medicine, talk about oral appliances and have an assumptive close. The patient's pathway is not a mystery in medicine. It's It's still has as many dental consultants as you can find on the dental side. I spent some time doing that years gone by with Mercer Advisors, the Pankey Institute, had a consulting company myself for a while, had a lot of fun with that, helping dentists uh, be more successful at getting patients to say yes to dental treatment plans, an entirely different side of healthcare. In medicine, we have an insurance coverage. There's still gonna be co-payments and out-of-pockets, but in dentistry, there is no insurance. In dentistry, uh, there's no insurance because insurance is defined as when a third party takes the risk for catastrophic loss. Nothing catastrophic, about a thousand or twelve or fifteen hundred bucks. 
certainly catastrophic when you get to thousands of dollars of treatment, surgery, had shoulder surgery done, 15,000, knees, 25,000. You can only imagine what really much more serious cardiovascular intervention costs. So this whole idea of insurance, third party picking up the cost, it's very, very different in medicine for catastrophic expenses than it is in dentistry. And today with trying to keep insurance costs down, sometimes people have larger deductibles. So sometimes it's still very much a cash discussion and a cash kind of conversation. Totally get that, totally get that. And so that'll make sense as we go forward. But medicine has studied the patient pathway first in looking at chronic care management, cancer management, cardiovascular disease, because it required so much change in behavior and how do they bring the patient into the healthcare process and invite them to change uh, these and accept medically necessary treatments. And so they measure outcomes. They measure uh, transition from point A to point B to point C as they travel through a pathway or a funnel in getting their treatment done. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can just steal some of the best ideas for medicine, apply them to sleep in a dental practice, and maybe increase our success. I like it. The first conversational talk track, and you heard me use some of these terms a few minutes ago, is just to understand that the patient comes in with some level or not of awareness or not of what obstructive sleep apnea or snoring or their partner elbowing them or whatever that is, is. So our job is to walk them up this learning ladder from unaware of the disease state to aware to maybe being able to personalize it for them so that they understand that they have a risk of maybe having this disease that snoring often is sleep apnea, not 100% of the time, but often enough that we're concerned, stop, bang, upward sleepiness scale. You know all the tools, not teaching those tonight. Enough of a connection at the awareness state that they become interested. I want them to lean into the conversation a little bit because we're talking about them, or we're talking about their spouse, we're talking about their life, talking about their quality of life. Usually they can become interested. And then if you have a conversation with them that holds water, you can become trustworthy. And isn't that what we want to do with even our dental patients? We want them to become aware of the disease state, interested, come to believe or trust in us. And then we want them to ask that commitment statement. Well, Doc, what do you, what do you think we ought to do about that? You know, because I don't want to wear a CPAP. Well, I think you might be an oral appliance candidate. We want them to actually come to a place where they have this cognitive dissonance about treatment, where they ask us in a consultative way, hear this consultative selling concept. What do you think we ought to do? And that's a change in paradigm for patients because a lot of patients come in very unaware. When, when patients are being screened in a dental practice. Now, when patients come in for my sleep physicians, very aware. They've had a conversation. The physician's already lit a fire under their butt and scared their bejeebers out of them. And they're coming in, script in one hand, sleep test in the other hand, they're ready to go. And they don't want to wear a CPAP, that's why they're here. But patients you're screening, conversations you're having there, it's going to be a little bit of a shift. And the big shift for most patients is from this idea of snoring to this very comprehensive comorbid environment that surrounds sleep apnea. So our conversation, our talk track, our examples can probably hit on one or two or four or six of the items that we see associated with sleep apnea for these patients so that it creates a higher level of concern, not trying to scare them, concern, understanding, um, awareness, interest. And then when we talk to them in an objective way, 
about information and data and science. And it doesn't mean we have to be science nerds. And we were talking before we started about uh, a bunch of studies about high efficacy and precision oral appliances and cool stuff. And, and a couple of people were asking for those and I'll send them out, no question. But it's uh, we don't have to be nerdy and have them read a bunch of scientific articles about this, but we have to make them aware and the messaging we have has to be based on science and facts and consistency with what they're being told in the medical model as well. And if we do that pretty well, then we start to move towards a conversation we can have with patients about understanding the difference and them feeling the difference that they're in a medical model, that they're in a medical model when we're treating obstructive sleep apnea and not a dental practice. And that's important because patients have different ways that they move through the dental model than they do through the medical model. We and our patients have different behaviors that we have learned and that we have taught them and that they have learned about their beliefs, their understandings, their perceptions, their paradigms about dentistry and dental insurance versus medical care and medical insurance. And so this whole idea of this conversation about money, I often say, when I'm, when I'm talking to practices that want to be more successful, one of the things I usually see in practices that are under-indexing on the yeses that they get is they talk way too much about money because we're used to doing that in dentistry. We're used to having to have those robust conversations about how much it's going to cost, how much it's going to be out of pocket, uh, what the value of this is. And I'm not saying those aren't reasonable things to have in a conversation, but let them come from the patient asking, not from us telling, because it's all too often that we build these barriers. Chad, you look like you're ready to ask me a question. I can tell. You're just on such a good one. I don't want to interrupt because you're, <laughs> you're so right. Um, I actually got private message to question. Um, I guarantee this will happen a couple more times tonight. But as a reminder, um, there's a question and answer section for these. Um, someone just asked you, you mentioned earlier, you know, not talking to patients about the clinical stuff and the money. Um, and then now you're getting into the how and the why beyond this, you know, one hour webinar tonight, what do you have any recommendations on where to learn some soft skills or, or anything like that? Yeah. Um, we're going to have another webinar probably later in the year and that'll be our topic. <laughs> there you go. All right. Dig it. <laughs> you got to go to awaken to sleep's webinar series, uh, featuring Murph doggy dog, and we'll cover that one off. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. So, um, it, it's, it's not something you're going to find in the mastery program with the AADSM. It's not something you're going to find in a lot of the different courses. Um, I know, Chad, I've, I've lectured for you in some of your courses, your one day and your two days. And, and I know that that is something you all talk about. You talk about how to talk to people about money. I love, uh, Michael often says, now I'm not trying to scare them, <laughs> but, it, but it will kind of scare them. But yeah. he's, very, he's very eloquent saying, you're not trying to scare them, but you know, one of the options is no treatment. <laughs> and let me tell you what happens there. And it's, and that's scary as hell, right? So yeah. it's, it's a little bit of that. So let me tell you a little anecdote. Um, I, I talked about data earlier, so this will have some data in it. But this little story, I worked for the practice that was uh, struggling. Uh, the practice was uh, getting referrals from physicians. They were getting 60 referrals, six zero, 60 referrals a month of patients coming in from this hospital group with a prescription in one hand and a sleep test in the other. <clears throat> High five, right? Awesome. Yeah. They were closing. They were delivering 14 one, four devices per month, 14. Real quick, anyone in the audience would be interested in doing 14 appliances per month, there's a little raise hand icon. We're very interested. Make sure we got the right group tonight. 
Yeah, that's go ahead. My, that's my December generally. That's good. Working one day a week, I do about 14 <laughs> in a month, about three a day, four weeks. So um, so they, they knew that they had a problem. That, clearly they did. They knew that they were doing something wrong. They had some suspicions, but they came to me and asked me, they said, Mark, you do a lot of this kind of stuff. And, and they were friends of mine. And so I, I flew out to see them after having a lengthy conversation with both of the principals, flew out to see them, spent a day with them and their team. And then that evening, uh, delivered some news to them about what I thought they should do. And the next morning, we trained up the team on what to do. And the bottom line was this, and I'm going to shorten the story. For every single one of the patients, what they did is first, a very complete and thorough examination and a consultation that lasted an hour. They explained all of the insurance co-payments deductibles for them and explained to them that even though they had this explanation of all this information, they're going to have to wait for a pre-auth and um, they can't guarantee that the insurance will pay what they think they're going to pay. They could still own this entire out-of-pocket amount. So they had every single patient sign a financial agreement that they would be responsible for the entire amount. This gets worse. And then they had them all make a deposit, put a down payment on before they would schedule their impression appointment. And I said, if you just um, took all that stuff away, um, you'd close more, a lot more. And they got very nervous. And I explained to them that what they had done is they had done typical dental thinking. They created an excellent system for the wrong thing. Management, great, doing things right. Leadership, poor. They weren't doing the right things. The right thing would be to help those patients get a device delivered in a timely fashion, knowing that maybe one or two, or even three out of the 60 on an average month, maybe skips town and doesn't pay their bill, but they'll get to a lot more devices. In the first month, when they eliminated all those financial conversations and barriers, they got very nervous and they went from closing 22% to closing 80%. Wow. A, month later, a month later, they went up to 90% and they stayed high since. Now, just to do the math, forget what 16 devices is per month. It's already pretty good. This is a sleep only practice, been around for a long time. But if you think about the difference between 14 and 54 per month, that is four, zero, 40 devices a month on average. If they only got $2,500 a device for those 40 devices, it would be $100,000 a month in revenue. That'd be $1.2 million on the year. Hope you're following the bouncing ball and doing the math quickly. Yep. And even if they had a 10%, which they wouldn't, but even if they had a 10%, they never did, not even close, that didn't pay. And they lost $120,000. They'd still have 900. I'm sorry. They'd still have $1,080, $1,080,000 left on the table that they wouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. So if that's the cost of doing business, that's cheaper than a marketing fee. Yeah. So they were very happy with the results by just getting the money talk out of the way on the medical side. And it's simple conversations like when a patient says, well, how much is this going to cost? My, my team is trained, my team, my wife and I, my team, my team is trained, my group, my group, my wife and I, uh, my daughter, when she worked for me, we were trained to say, well, actually, Chad, it's covered under your medical insurance, which takes eight out of the 10 questions and just sw swoops them under the rug. And for the other two patients who would say, well, listen, I have a $5,000 deductible. It's January. This whole thing's coming out of my pocket. What's going to cost me? And I'd say, well, don't worry. Uh, the good news is because you have Blue Cross. And I'm in network with Blue Cross. The maximum allowable benefit that Blue Cross allows is 2,456 bucks here in Michigan. So that's the most it can cost you out of pocket. What I really said to the patient to comfort them was, don't worry. You think I'm going to rip you off and charge you too much money. But your insurance company sets a fee, not me. And you trust them. I didn't really say that to them, but that's what they heard. Got okay, it. I digress. We're off that topic now. Moving on. So cool. 
if if the patients aren't and they are worried about money, don't don't think they're not worried about money, but they're going to figure out how to pay for it because it's medically necessary. It's not a crown that they want to look better, a tooth that's a little sensitive. It's a medically necessary treatment to save their life. But the what the patients are worried about are three questions, and it's pretty simple. The three questions are. Well, I, I hear you talking about this disease and I, I hear some ramifications around that that sound like it could be me. Stop bang, upward sleeping a scale. I'm over 50, I'm overweight, got high blood pressure, I snore. My wife has said I stopped breathing. Do I have this disease? Don't know, gotta get you tested. Is it serious? Well, hopefully I paint a picture for you with these eight slides where you know it's life-threatening. Now it's not life-threatening in that I think you're gonna go home today and have a heart attack if you don't have an oral appliance in your mouth. But actually, if you're severe, that risk is 23 times more likely to have a heart attack while you're sleeping than the, or the average person. The, the math, the data, and the increase in the comorbidities and the shortness of life, or as I like to call it, not the shortness of life, the premature death for patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Think of the languaging we use. Don't say, you know, this can shorten your life a little bit. The premature death that we see caused by obstructive sleep apnea is something that's very preventable, either with a CPAP, an oral appliance, certain surgical procedures like Inspire. I like to think of it that way. This premature death, because that's a lot more uh, averse feeling than encouraging to say shortness of life. And then finally, well, if I do have this and it's serious, can you treat it? And so I always try to give them hope with that. And so in, in giving them hope, we do things with them. And I'll talk about that when we go through the slides that helps them see that not only uh, do we need a test so we can figure out if you have this, but it is really serious. And the hope is, yeah, we have a treatment. We have several treatments. Let's figure out which one is right for you. It might be CPAP, might be oral appliance. Maybe it's surgery, maybe it's positional. There's a number of different things. Maybe it's weight loss if you're young enough, that'd be great. But these are the questions that medical research has found that patients with serious chronic conditions, chronic medical conditions are asking when they're starting to assess hypertension, cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, tumors, cancer. Do I have this disease? Is it serious? Can you treat it? Can you get me back on a path? They're not asking how much does it cost? What's my copay? And how much goes towards my deductible? They're not asking how uncomfortable is the treatment? Uh, if they did, nobody would get inspired, right? because that's a surgical procedure and it's nothing easy. So you're probably asking yourself like I am, how do we walk this patient down the road? Well, when we're thinking about how the patient has this, you know, we're screening them. And so the screen gives us some information and whether we use a stop bang, whether we use some sort of a questionnaire, the upward sleepiness scale. And, and when we talk about that, when we talk about um, screening patients and moving them into treatment, another discussion, by the way, we could talk about how we use that as almost an internal marketing tool to start a conversation because it's really the stop bang that I want to utilize and say you have three out of these eight risk factors that puts you at moderate risk. You have four or more. doesn't matter whether it's four or eight. You have four or five, six or seven. You have four or more of these factors. That means you're nine. I say 90. It's actually 92 percent in the literature. You're 90 percent likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. But, Chad, we still don't know if you have it or not unless we get you tested. So let's go ahead and get you tested. Presumptive close, hear that? Assumptive close, let's go ahead and get you tested. Not, would you like to get tested? Let me explain to you how much it's gonna cost. Let's get you tested. That's the only way we can find out for sure. So let's let's ask you to answer that question. A lot of uh, practices, uh, we use this sometimes with patients that don't have a bed partner that's reporting their snoring, is we'll have them use a tool like Snorlabs. 
Um, I, I love it sometimes when a patient will say, well, my wife says I snore, but I don't think I snore. Really? You, you think they're going to lie about that? Well, for God's sakes, download Snore Lab on your phone and listen to yourself snore for a couple of nights. And I'm pretty sure you'll either believe your wife or, or you'll come get an oral appliance. These are things we can do uh, to help the patient want to know, do they have this? Is it serious? Well, great question. Well, that's what my eight slides, you can see them in the background there. Is it serious? I'm going to tell them what obstructive sleep apnea is. I'll go through these slides in a minute. Risk factors, comorbidities, treatment options, uh, what we need to do to find out whether or not they have it. All in one, but it's going to tell a very tenuous story about a shortened life, a premature death, and that this disease, although it doesn't really cause any primary diseases, maybe maybe some arrhythmias, maybe drug-resistant hypertension, we can blame those primarily on obstructive sleep apnea. It doesn't cause diseases in and of itself, but it makes other diseases that patients tend to have way worse. Now we're looking at still maybe it, it has this influence on dementia. And so that, that may be a card we'll get to play as well. Um, we do mention that sometimes in a conversation, uh, you know, this, this poor sleep, this lack of of brain getting cleaned out uh, leaves a lot of debris in there that sometimes seems to almost caramelize and, and create some of these dimensional changes. That's what they're starting to talk about in the literature. So it gives us this idea of, um, yeah, this is some serious shit. This is nothing to fool around with. This is really serious. And it's a silent killer. Like so many other diseases are, you don't feel hypertension. You don't feel cardiovascular disease. You don't feel arteries closing 50, 60%. Not till they're 80 or 90%. Not till you have some angina pain going on your left arm. Do you say, yeah, I think, I think I might have a heart problem. <laughs> you know, if you wait for pain as a warning sign, it's usually too late. So, you know, and people will say sometimes, well, you know, I don't feel any pain. Everything must be all right. No, the absence of pain does not mean okay. The absence of pain does not mean, I'm sorry. The whole medical system is built on trying to find these markers, these uh, indicators, these metrics that we can find about uh, blood pressure, heart rate, weight, uh, BMI, um, cholesterol. All these kinds of things, uh, your, your AC1 or C1A, I forget what diabetics have to have, uh, the prostate uh, protein that we see. We do urinalysis. Why do they do all that stuff? They do all that stuff because those become really good ways for us to prevent premature death by managing those disease entities quite early. That's why so many of us get on those medications in our 40s and 50s. Um, can you treat it? Well, I... I usually have a slew of videos from a host of different patients, and I usually try to put up one that's similar to their situation or similar to their, their persona uh, that they can see. And I say it doesn't always work, but it does work about 94% of the time for mild and moderate cases, drops down to about 80, 85% for severe cases, but we're very, very effective. And it's a lot easier for patients to use this therapy than it is a CPAP. And so many patients say, I can never wear a CPAP. Almost everybody knows somebody with a CPAP, knows a story about a CPAP. So at least we don't have to teach them what a CPAP is. We often have to teach them what normal appliance is. Is it treatable? Well, we, we want to give them hope. So somewhere in the consultation, somewhere, either while I'm talking about sleep apnea, somewhere while I'm going through the eight slides, somewhere I'll say, well, do me a favor. Well, then you head back and make a story sign. And, and this is really a lot of fun in a room full of people. You, you know, we've got pushing 100 people in the room tonight, so that's great. So if we had 100 people in the room, we all leaned back and made a snoring sound. On the count of three, let's all do that. One, two, three. Now stick your jaw forward. Feel the difference? Yeah, it was a lot harder to make that sound. Well, that's what we want to do for you. If I can find the right position to put your jaw forward a little bit like that, 
it can open your airway in the back. And if I can find the right spot and it opens it enough, we might be able to manage your apnea mechanically like that rather than with pumping air down your tube. I'm giving them hope. Is it treatable? Usually. How often? 90%. I love quoting that statistic. Why? Because it doesn't always work. One out of 10 people, non-responder, one out of 10 people maybe can't wear an oral appliance, doesn't like their job being forward, can't get used to it. One out of 10, mild to moderates. Maybe two out of 10 severes. It's not a lot, but if you're one of those two out of 10 people and you're severe and you don't want to wear CPAP and the oral appliance doesn't work, you'll be bummed. So I'm not going to overpromise and underdeliver. I'm going to say 90%, and I'm going to use that snore test to give them hope. So think of, think of what we will have done with these three questions. Do I have it? No, no, got to get tested. You're definitely in high risk. We got to get you tested. Is it serious? Hell yes, it is. These slides are going to help illustrate that. And then finally, is it treatable? Well, I'm going to give you hope. Um, that, that snore test is a, a beacon of hope for them that maybe it'll work. The bad news is once in a while, somebody will either head back and make a snoring sound, pick their job forward, don't make the same snoring sound. You go, well, that's not good. And I tell them that's not good because if you can stick your jaw forward and still make that snoring sound, I'm afraid maybe it's still easy for you to collapse that airway. Would you still treat them? Sure. But maybe if they were sitting on the fence, I'd push them faster towards CPAP. It's not a scientific study. We don't have any data that shows that's a predictive test as to whether or not they can be treated with oral appliances. But anecdotally, I worry about it. That's why things like a CBCT scan looking at airway changes is really good information, but it doesn't tell us whether or not they'll be treatable. Acoustic pharyngometry, really cool, wonderful sales tool for patients to be able to see that. I love that. Predictive of whether or not the patient can be treated? No. Well, the snore test is the same way. It's just a lot less expensive than a CBCT scan. So that's those are the three questions. Those are the three kinds of answers that I try to look at to say, here's the answers to your three questions. And these are the conversation constructs that I'll use during the presentation of those eight slides during the council. Remembering, like we said, I want to think medically. I want to think medically. I need my team to think medically. I need the patient to think medically. I need the payment process to be medical. I want to close. I'm not going to close everybody. There's going to be exceptions. But if my target is high, my target's going to be nine out of 10. And, and that office that I worked with was uh, 22%, 2.2 out of 10. And with just a simple change, they got to eight out of 10. Now, those are very easy patients to close. They knew they had sleep apnea. They were examined. They were diagnosed. They came in tested with a prescription. It's never going to get any easier than that. What a gift, 60 patients a month. It's a lot harder to close nine out of 10 into a test. And then nine out of 10 of those who got tested and have mild or moderate or failed or refused CPAP into an oral appliance. So now we've got two pieces of the funnel. First, a testing funnel. I see patients, I screen them. Some of them need to be tested. I wanna close nine out of 10 of them that should be tested into a test. Now, what comes back out of that test? Well, let's say that eight out of those nine come back with a positive, and, and Chad and I were just talking about this beforehand, how predictive the screening process, how predictive stop bang was. And Chad, you said you had some data that was internal about testing. Share that if you would mind. 
Yeah. So our, our, my last review of our internal data, we provide interpretations we have for, I think, going on six or seven years now. And we've interpreted thousands of studies in this time. And um, a couple of years ago, we were at over 5,000. So I ran analysis at 5,000. I said, what was the show? And over 90, I'm going to use this number, but it's 95%, but we'll say at 90% of people who were tested were tested with a mild or above diagnosis. And of those people that were tested, we saw that over 70% of them on average were actually in the mild to moderate category. Uh, the remaining 30% was split. Something like 17, I think, was severe and 13 was, you know, uh, upper airway or uh, snoring. So Okay. So give me 100 patients uh, that I think should be tested. And I can, let's say I can close 90% of them or 90 of those patients into a test. You're telling me that 90% of those are 81, maybe a little higher, but let's say 81, 82 of them come back with a positive result. And that 70% of those are 56 or 60, let's say 60 now of the total corpus of 100 are treatable with an oral appliance. So there's your funnel math. And that's something you should be tracking. Chad keeps an eye on the data and the statistics on their, their testing viability in our practice and many other practices. I, I published a couple of papers where we looked at dose statistics, we looked at advancement statistics. We have this data, it's all available to us. How many patients did I screen? How many patients did I wanna get tested? And then what can I change about my behaviors to improve the closure rate uh, uh, into that test or into that treatment. So those are really good viable things. And these eight slides should be one of those tools I think that would help. And they don't have to be my eight slides. Don't hear that. Start with my eight slides, make them your own by all means, change them around. If you decide you like them just the way they are, for God's sakes, they're yours. My gift. Chad's one gift. One more, one more stat. They are sure. our gift. No, one more stat is um, <laughs> 32.7. of your existing patient population need a sleep test. So that's an important that. stat. Um, the industry range is 28 to 35. We have actual data from coaching clients. Some of you guys are on this call today. You know what I'm talking about. That shows that's our average over all of our clients, 32. So, so a practice with 2,100 patients, not an unusual number at all, has 700 yep. patients according to that data that yes. needs testing. Yep. And if 90% and if of them, 630 go through with the test and 90% yep. of those 600 uh, uh, go ahead and uh, uh, come back with a positive result. Yes. And even if half of them got an oral appliance, that would be 400 yep. or 300. And if 300 got an oral appliance and you did two a week, it would take you three years to work through your own patient <laughs> population. Right. So, and most practices start off a little slower. So uh, I will I will say this too, guys. Um, we used to do this all the time. We've slowed down in recent years. But if you want to look at your funnel, starting with all those numbers, we actually, our coaches will go through your patient sure. size your average metrics, what goals you should be setting in your practice uh, and meet with you on, on what your program is doing and what little tweaks you can do. We'll throw in some information later, but if you want to know your numbers or what you should be looking at or how long you'll be busy with your existing patients, uh, we'd be happy to do that with you. So anyways, Mark, um, keep on. Sean, I do see your question. Thank you for using the Q&A section. We'll get to that at the end here. Okay. So let's look at these eight slides. Let's, let's look at these eight steps if we think of them that way. Um, my first slide that I start out with, and you can create your own slide, you can create your own definition, doesn't matter, is I say to the patient something like, in fact, let me back up. I sit down with the patient at a consult, face-to-face -face or online, 
small talk. I hear you refer to him by Dr. Wooters at Awaken Asleep. Yeah, great guy. We've worked with him before. That's super. Um, I don't have any patients to screen myself. They either come from another dentist who doesn't want to do sleep or they come from sleep physicians. So uh, he sent you over to see us, right? And I can see now the patient's already filled out um, the portal. We have a, an online portal that they can fill out in our uh, EMR so that we've got um, some medical records and information on them, health history. So I've got a, I've got some indication that they've already had a sleep test. They haven't had a sleep test. They've got some complaints about health. I've got some information. So I make sure I recognize and acknowledge to them that I've read their chart and that I know something about them. And then I say, so how can we help? And I stop talking. And if the pause is really uncomfortable alone, I'll talk again, but I want them to talk. So how can we help? Well, Dr. Wooder sent me over, um, said because I was snoring and, and, and he was going to make me a bike guard, but he said with snoring and a bike guard, it can actually hurt the airway. And so he thought I should get evaluated by you. Oh, excellent. So did he talk to you at all about um, obstructive sleep apnea or that you might be at risk for that? Yeah, he did mention something like, do you really know what obstructive sleep apnea is? And up pops this slide, right? So I explained to them, here's the following tidbits that I try to hit. And you'll find your own voice for this, but I'll say to them, so what happens is when any of us, every single human being lays down at night to go to bed, gravity works against us and the tongue has a tendency to fall back to the back of the throat and close off the airway. Now it doesn't always close off the airway and it doesn't close it off as much if we lay on our side. So when we lay on our back, it's usually worse, but look at how it wants to close off the airway. And here's the interesting thing. You know that little thing that hangs down to the back of your throat, the uvula? Yeah. And you know that thing that, that, protects your air tube from getting food down. It's called the epiglottis. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I have. Well, those two little things in every other mammal, except for humans, they overlap. So, so think about that. Look at this diagram. If, if that epiglottis and the uvula overlap, when the tongue falls back, it'll hit them instead of close off the airway. So there's a little bit more protection in every other mammal, except for us. Now, it's actually a lie. English bulldogs have the same structure. Other animals can snore, but it's not from airway closure. It's a nasal snoring. English bulldogs actually have the same anatomy. I don't know why, why they're the exception. No other mammal does. So it makes it easier for us as humans. And, and then plus, some people have large tongues. Some people have small jaws. In fact, most of us don't have room for our wisdom teeth because if you look back three or four or 500 years ago, our jaws were bigger and everybody had room for the wisdom teeth. So as our jaws are getting smaller and our tongues aren't, and especially if we get heavier, everything gets fat, including our tongue, it's easier for that tongue to fall back in those wet mucousy tissues to and I actually make that sound and close off the airway. And that's obstructive sleep apnea. Now, that happens to everybody. It's worse if you drink. Everybody gets even more relaxed. It's worse when you're in really uh, a stage of sleep called dream sleep or REM sleep. The, that's usually more of the second half of the night. But this happens to everybody. When it happens just a few times per hour, zero to five, there's no real health detriment to that. When it happens more, five to 15, we call that mild or stage one sleep apnea. When it happens 15 to 30, it's stage two disease. And if it happens north of 30 times, and we've seen people with 60, 80, 100 times. Can you imagine twice a minute, some people will have a, where they stop breathing or they don't get enough air in and their blood oxygen drops down. And the problem with that is when you don't get enough air in, normally you would just go and take a breath, but you're sleeping. And normally, if you were standing up and you didn't get enough oxygen into your brain, you'd faint, but you're already laying down. So for these people, you'll see a sudden raise in their heart rate, a sudden raise in their blood pressure, and their body thinks they're pushing a car out of a snowbank, even though they're laying in bed sleeping. Can, can you imagine 
people that have heart attacks at night when they're sleeping, it's usually from obstructive sleep apnea. And it's because their body thinks they're pushing a car out of a snowbank. They're already laying down sleeping. How could you have a heart attack laying down and resting? In fact, if we have obstructive sleep apnea, these graphs show how much more sudden and premature the death is in those populations. The green line are people that don't have sleep apnea and their life expectancy over 20 years. Any and all cause of death, cardiovascular disease, motor vehicle accident, everything all lumped together. And then the purple, mild, the yellow, moderate, and the red, 53% of those patients survived, 47%. It's estimated that patients with obstructive sleep apnea live about six and a half to seven and a half years less than people without obstructive sleep apnea. So by treating sleep apnea, we start to increase the chances for you and I to live longer if somebody does have sleep apnea. And there's so many different causes of death. In fact, you heard me talk about heart attacks. Well, it turns out that a person with obstructive sleep apnea is 23 times more likely than the average person to have a heart disease and have a heart attack at night while they're sleeping. The, the average person, if it's one, overweight, hypertension, and smoking don't even come close to obstructive sleep apnea making that worse. They're also four times more likely to have a stroke and five times more likely to die of COVID if they get it. This is a very serious breathing disease. We did not used to know much about sleep, but today, honestly, we still don't know a lot about sleep, but we know enough to know that if we don't get a good night's sleep, it raises all kinds of hell with our physiology. We see increasing rates of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, worsening of several different chronic diseases. In fact, when you look at some of the most common chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, arrhythmia, stroke, congestive heart failure, depression, if you look at the center part of each one of those zones, that's the normal presentation of that disease in the population. And the bottom of each one of those is young people. And as you get towards the top, older people, and you can see most diseases get worse as we get older. Makes sense, right? But when you look at those dotted lines, the red dotted lines are for the women and the blue dotted lines are for the men. That's how many more people or how much worse that disease is in patients that have obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea does not really cause any diseases by itself. Maybe some arrhythmias are caused by it, maybe drug-resistant hypertension. But for the most part, obstructive sleep apnea makes other diseases worse, causing premature death in those patients. No one ever has on their death certificate, this patient died of obstructive sleep apnea, but people like Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice, Reggie White, the football player, died in their beds at night, having a heart attack, massive heart attack. Somebody say he died peacefully in their sleep. Nobody dies peacefully in their sleep. They die with their body gasping for air because they have obstructive sleep apnea and they throw an emboli or a myocardial infarction and have a heart attack. Well. There's lots of things we can do to treat this. Some people are lucky enough that if they just sleep on their sides, the tongue doesn't fall back as much, especially in mild, sometimes that'll help. Or if they lose weight, sometimes that'll help. So they make some things like this that looks like a fanny pack. They call it a slumber bump. You could wear a, a fanny pack with some crunched up material in there that keeps you off your back. Or you could wear a backpack while you're sleeping. You could sew three tennis balls in the back of a shirt. Some people sleep in an upright position in a chair. You've heard about that. That's all those things are trying to put gravity back on your side. Oral appliance therapy, very easy to wear. 
doesn't work all the time. Works about 90% of the time for mild and moderate cases, drops down about 80% of the time. The actual data is 94 and, and, and 85, but it, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. I want to underpromise and overdeliver. So about nine out of 10 patients are successfully treated with neural appliance for mild and moderate. And even the severes that aren't successfully treated usually report they feel much better and are sleeping much better. And maybe we can move them from severe to mild sleep apnea. And if we can do that, sometimes that's still going to be considered a successful treatment. CPAP works 100% of the time, but hardly anybody can tolerate wearing it. If I gave 100 people a CPAP at the end of the year, half of them would be wearing it, and they'd be wearing it four or five hours a night, five nights out of the week. So that's not very good. Uh, I mentioned weight loss, sometimes oxygen. There are certain medications they're working on now. They're not as successful. There are a lot of different surgical procedures. Some people need their tonsils out because that helps close the airway off. You can see that there. Some people have that, the uvula is hanging down so far. It's so floppy and swollen. It falls backwards and helps close the airway. So sometimes trimming and reshaping that and firming up that tissue helps firm up the airway. And then sometimes bringing the lower jaws forward. If somebody's got a really tiny jaw and a big tongue, sometimes surgery to move both the upper jaw and lower jaw forward can help. And then finally, you've heard of Inspire, no mask, no hose. Oh, they forgot to tell you about the scalpels, but they put a little pacemaker-like device in your chest, run a wire up through under your skin to your neck, and in the base of your tongue, they put it around a nerve in your tongue so that while you're sleeping, when the sensor feels like you're not breathing it, stimulates your tongue to jet forward to open your airway for you. And that's pretty effective about 70% of the time, 68 actually. And, and when patients get this, only about three out of four actually turn it on every night. So it works. Uh, it's really only a treatment that they try for people that are severe and can't wear a CPAP. And I think someday they're gonna say it's for somebody that's severe and can't wear a CPAP and can't use an oral appliance because those are just so much easier to use. The surgery is like 30, 40, sometimes $50,000. And so it's not easy to do. With CPAP therapy, uh, most of the people that get one of these devices have, have a lot of trouble wearing it or wearing it all the night. A lot of people wear it the first half of the night, take it off and not wear it the second half of the night. They'll get up to go pee in the middle of the night and not put it back on. And it's the second half of the night where usually your sleep apnea is worse because you do more dreaming. You do more what we call rapid eye movement sleep the second half. But with oral appliances, we get really good compliance. So even though oral appliances don't work all the time, they have a very high success rate at being an effective therapy because patients will actually wear them. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Before we really move into thinking about what kind of treatment would be right for you, whether or not you need to be treated, we've got to figure out whether or not you have sleep apnea. And the only way to tell whether you're not have sleep apnea is to do one of two different types of tests. And here I talk to them about polysonography and a sleep lab test. And I talk about a home sleep test. Now, I'm stopping here and pretending I'm not, I'm talking to you now instead of talking to the patient. In my mind, I've got to make a decision. Let's say the patient was screened in my office or let's say the patient came in from a dental practice. I'm responsible for triaging this patient and either sending them to a sleep physician because they have a multitude of sleep issues, a very complex medical history or some other reason that I don't think a home sleep test would be appropriate. Now, that's an important triage step. Home sleep testing primarily is only asking and answering one question. If you think the patient has sleep apnea and that's the problem, it asks and answers the question, does the patient have sleep apnea? It doesn't check for a lot of other conditions that are related to sleep, sleep irregularities, sleep cycling, sleep stages, restless leg, 
periodic limb movement, uh, sleep latency program. There's none of those kinds of things are looked at really with home sleep testing. So if the patient doesn't have a really complex medical history, if they don't have a really complex sleep history, we're just really asking and answering a question about sleep apnea, then, then I, I want to encourage them to consider a home sleep test instead of a reference or referral to a sleep lab. So I show them the first type of test that can be done, and this is done for patients that really have complex medical histories, complex sleep histories, is in a sleep lab. And a lot of patients tell you right there, oh, I could never do that, I can sleep lab. I know you couldn't, they wire up, they've got things all over. Sometimes it looks like a little cap you're wearing, but sometimes that's the right kind of test for patients to have. And it tests a lot of different things, but it is a little bit more challenging. Most patients do really well with, and I show them a home sleep test. And you could show in this picture, whatever home sleep test you're using, that would be fine. And so, you know, Chad can get you images of whatever sleep test he's, he's using with you and make sure that you've got the right ones lined up. I've got several pictures of several different ones. When I lecture, this is a ResMed Apnea Link Air. I could use a Z machine. You could use Air. It doesn't matter. Whatever sleep test. If it's a night or something like that, it's really easy to show them. You just wrap it around your finger for Pete's sake or watch Pat one. But the idea to say, and, and they look at this and they go, I think I could do that. Yeah, we wear this at night. And, and with the sleep testing we're doing, I say, you wear this at night at home for a couple of nights. They mail it to you. You pick a date or two dates where you're going to wear it. They mail it to you. You wear it for a couple of nights. You mail it back. While the physician is reading the data, when he gets that done, he'll send it to me. I'll give you a call and tell you what it said. And then you'll have a follow-up visit with the physician. And they go, well, that sounds easy. Sure does. So now I'm, remember our conversation. Do I have this? I don't know. We're going to have to get you tested. That's what I'm closing right now. Is it serious? I hope I scared the hell out of them. Not, not scaring the hell out of them, but just making sure that they're aware this is not to be trifled with. And then is there hope? Can you treat this? 90% is pretty good. Snore test, pretty good. So I'm trying to, remember what we said we're going to do, I'm trying to answer some of their questions before they ask them. Okay, so home sleep test. So now I say to them, so what we really need to do is go ahead and get you tested. So let me go ahead and I'll turn to Denise and I'll say, let me go ahead and I'll Denise order that up for you right now. Now, here's where we get our first ever sometimes conversation about money. I'm not lying to you. If you do not bring up money, it doesn't come up very often. This is a medically necessary. Patient wants to know. Patient wants to get tested. But let's pretend that some of those patients, I don't know how many, because it doesn't happen often to us, say to me, well, wait a minute, how much does a sleep test cost? And I go, actually, it's covered under your medical insurance. That's my standard line. They're in a dental office. They know they have to pay for everything in a dental office. And so they're saying to my, well, I'm in a dental office. Is this going to cost me money? And are you selling me something? No, this is a sleep test. It's covered under your medical insurance. Okay. And if they say, well, well I, I've got a big deductible there like that, I love I, there's no wrong model. You could dispense the sleep test yourself. Absolutely. You could refer to a physician every time. Absolutely. You could lose a sleep testing partner. Absolutely. No wrong answer there. It's whatever you're comfortable with in the conversation. And for me, I love kicking that off to a third party and saying, well, actually, they'll take care of that conversation with you and everything like that. But if you have a huge deductible, I can tell them it's around 300 bucks for the sleep test. And then there's some fee for the office visit for, you know, the telemedicine visit. And they're like, oh, okay, it's not $3,000. It's not $100,000. They have no idea. Now I've closed them into a test. So these eight slides give me the opportunity to walk a patient from unaware to aware to interested to trusting or believing in me to wanting to go ahead with treatment or therapy and get their sleep test. It, it's really, if you will, an opportunity to move them from 
a decision that they make with their head to a decision that they make with their heart. And that's important. So it's moving them from their, their head logic decision to emotionally this, this conscious, trusting, believing in you kind of thinking. Um, there's a book called 18 Inches, which talks about actually a faith journey. But you could think of it as a journey that a patient goes through from head to heart. And now they can make a decision, right? But it's not done there. It has to travel another 18 inches to their wallet. Because just because they decide they want to get something done, the heart, till they actually reach down into their wallet and make their co-payment or use their insurance card or something like that, there isn't really that, that closure of an actual sale. Sometimes in dentistry, we, we convince the patient in the back in the treatment room and they say yes to everything. Then they, they lose their brain by the time they walk up to the front desk and they never schedule for the treatment. So once they pull out the wallet, we're done, right? Nope. I would argue that it doesn't feel right until that patient has traveled 18 more inches to their knees where they drop down on a knee and give thanks for what you've done. And I'm not expecting them to actually drop down on a knee, but <laughs> when you treat a patient and they text you back and say, man, I'm sleeping better. I'm not snoring. My dog's back in bed. My wife's back in bed. This is great. That feels good. You feel that appreciation. And it's still not then there. It's got to still travel another 18 inches to their feet because that patient should become a missionary for your practice and tell their friends, their neighbors, other people that are on CPAPs, that you got to come see this guy. It's been incredible. So think of this 18-inch journey from head to heart, heart to wallet, wallet to knees, knees to feet, as a journey that the patient can take in your practice as you're treating them for sleep. So Chad, those are my eight steps to yes. I'm going to You've got my email there, so you're welcome to email me for any other information, questions, anything else you need. You know, I'm always available for that. And then I'm going to leave you your slides here. Do you want your slides up next? Um, yeah, real quick. Um, one one comment, just because sure. we have a lot of, I, I see a lot of our coaching clients on here too. Good. A lot of practices start on fee-for-service. Sure. And, and that's just to give perspective, because Mark gave a number. Uh, he said roughly $300, which is the average fee for shipping test. One number, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you do, Mark, but uh, the average cost for a home sleep test administered by a sleep center or a medical practice um, after the patient's insurance is considered is somewhere between $600 and $800. Um, that's their cash fee. So whether you're using a third party to ship that, whether you're using your own home sleep test, most of our clients are charging $140 to $250. Beautiful. It's a steal. Um, mm -hmm. when, when the money comes up, it's the best deal they're going to get. Mm -hmm. So just, uh, encouragement for those Love that are starting that. fee for service. So Love that. And, and I think, I think starting fee for service, we've talked about this many times. I, yeah. I love this idea of starting fee for service because you don't have a lot of these other unusual costs or reoccurring mm -hmm. costs while you're doing one or two devices on yourself, your friends, your family. Yep. Um, uh, I, I'm sure I'm not going to collect a full fee from this ENT and his wife. Uh, if insurance pays something, that's going to be great. If not, he's going to pay the laboratory fee. So that's wonderful. Um, but so when you're getting started the first three, four, five, six months, you're worried about just walking through the process, getting used to doing this. I think that's, yep. that's fee for service. And don't get me wrong. You always want the best closure rate you can get, but you're right. okay if not everybody says yes. You're finding your way. Once you yep. say, hey, I've got a little pattern here and I'm doing three or four devices a month. Well, now you need a software partner. Now you need a yeah. billing partner. Now you need other things and you've got those things available as well. So that's great. Yeah. Appreciate that. 
Um, if, if you don't mind going to the next slide, Mark, um, yep. one, if you guys want, whether it's our, us breaking down your funnel, us looking at your process, I, I just talked to a doctor who has been trying to on and off for five years to try and get sleep going and, and the little things making it easy for patients to say yes to the test, all the stuff that Mark's talking about. We, we talked about some of those different, you know, it was, it was one of our coaches approach to it, but making it easy and, and connecting with that patient's pain, not I mean, treating it like a medical practice, this is the next step. Every time um, makes it easy. And if you want to catch about your office, you're welcome to do that. This is a free call. It's for 30 minutes. Uh, just it's available to uh, for us to connect with you. I'm okay. perfectly good. I've got the first question queued up. Um, cool. Sean asked, when do I recommend a titration sleep test to determine efficacy of the appliance? Boy, that's a wrestling match all the time. So when the patient thinks they're in the right position, then I can, I, and there's different styles. Let me back up. When, when the patient goes home, then there's a titration sequence. For me, I let the patient advance themselves. I give them a schedule every five days, millimeter forward, advancing the arches. I use a lot of Evo. And so that's a really easy titration schedule for them to follow. And then I say to them, when you find a spot that you think you sleep the best, and if you go forward from one spot to the next and you don't like it as well, come back. When you say, I'm sleeping well here, my jaws feel good here, this is comfortable, high five. I have them come into the office then, and they pick up a pulse oximeter. They wear the pulse oximeter for two nights. I upload the data. I read it, and I say, that's good data. Go get your sleep test. Or I say, that's bad data. Even though that's a comfortable place for you, the data doesn't match how well you're sleeping. Let's try one millimeter forward. And so that gives me a, a – and it's me trying to get better results with my physicians and impress them so that they get a better follow-up sleep test because nothing pisses them off or me – or the patient more, they're getting a sleep test and going, you should go back on CPAP. And you say, well, no, wait a minute, we can advance them some more. And the physicians I work with are great. So they say, Mark, Mark's got to titrate you some more. But then they're like, I got to pay for another $300 test or $600 test. Or that, and that's yep. what Chad said, 600, 800 bucks. Holy crap. I, you know, And especially a lot of insurances are going to say, well, we're going to pay for a diagnostic test and we'll pay for an efficacy test. But after that, you're on your own, buddy. And so yep. now the, the meter's running. And so patients don't like to go back. Now, having said that, I would love to tell you that, um, and I do close about 90% of the patients into tests. And I'm we close just about everybody, 90% at least, into devices that need them. We're very, very effective at that with our conversations. I'm terrible at getting these patients to do their follow-up testing. <laughs> I would bet you that 50% of my patients get the pulse oximeter data and they go, listen, I'm feeling good. I'm sleeping good. Mark says the oxygen was good. And I see them six months later and I go, hey, I didn't get a test from your physician. Did you go back and see them? Nah, I didn't. Why not? Well, I'm feeling so good. And so I'm like, well, we don't really know. Well, you said the oxygen data was good. But I told you that's not a sleep test. That's just one piece of information. That's like looking at your heart rate, but I don't have your cholesterol data. You know, I don't have the full picture. Oh, okay. And then they don't go again because they feel so much better. So I, I got to be honest with you, probably half our patients actually end up getting, I, I, I do have the data actually, and it is around 50%. It's actually just slightly below 50% of the patients get the efficacy test. So if I, if I could give you some uh, antagonistic data, um, just to, to poke you a little bit, we do have, uh, with many clients who own and operate their own equipment, they're running oh, full sure. on. Yeah. And, and your model is so different, but we have... It, you know, it's $6 or $12 to run an efficacy test. And we have an, if you want to clean up the data, we have an AI titration service. It's like 20 bucks. So 25 bucks out the door 
costs. You include that in your treatment plan and you don't give your patient, I mean, you, again, different model, you're doing the pulse oximeters, which are working. It's just not the full on test. Right. It's, it's similar. It's a watch, right? Yep. Um, but we see a lot of practices when the patients come in, they're like, oh yeah, you're just going to take it home. It's included. Do it. And that's what, what, what sleep costs. test are you using mostly? Um, our two primaries right now are, um, Alicent ones and ResMeds. Those are the two okay. we see most, awesome frequently, but we got brain yeah, bars, we got Knox. So. I could send every, I could send everybody home with a test and my consumable cost is $12. I know that. So yeah. my consumable test will be $12. But now if the data is good, then I've got to send it over to my sleep physician and say, Hey, um, I ran an efficacy test. The data was good. Why don't you read this and charge them? Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and, and if I'm sending them back to their dentist, I also got to send them back to either a telemed or something to get tested. So I've still got to, I've still got to close that loop. So when I think of an efficacy test, I'm thinking of a, they are treated mm -hmm. and the physician has interpreted that test. Yeah. We, yeah. we also do efficacy interps. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you have any questions there, um, it, it's a great tool, uh, on that Dr. Moser is asking, um, what pull socks do you use? So I use the CMI health. Um, there, there's lots of different ones out there. What's this other one I've got down here in the drawer. Let me look at this one right here. This is, uh, Oxynite. Um, yeah, Oxynite CMI health. So here's, here's one of the CMI health ones. They're high-res pulse oximeters. What I like about them is uh, I like that one the best, and they don't make that model anymore because there's no buttons to touch. You tell mm. the patient, when you put it on, it turns on. So don't put it on until you're going to sleep. So put it on, it turns on. When you take it off, it turns off. No mm -hmm. buttons to push. So I use those for all my seniors. And if I've got somebody your age, I can actually trust you to push a couple of buttons on it <laughs> and we'll get good data and the oxygenites. But these things, are they're, they're very inexpensive. They're, you know, 100 mm -hmm. 25, 150, 190 bucks. And they're, they're a good quick check. You know, it's not a sleep test, but it's a yep. good quick check. And like you said, from a consumable standpoint, if you do use um, a, a full sleep test, like the Alice or the ResMed Apnea Link, you know, it's it's 10 bucks, 12 yep. bucks. It's all concussion. Yep. Um, I see a good one here. What's the best approach to connect with sleep physicians for referrals? Um, I would say the most effective that I've had is when I end up with a patient who already has a sleep physician and I'm going to treat them and then I've got to talk to them and they've got to talk to me. They don't have any choice. And then we have a really good result. That's the best way for me that I've collected, connected with sleep physicians. Um, even with that, though, I've, I've done a few lunch and learns. You knock on a lot more doors than you get in. You do a few more lunch and learns, you get referrals. I'm not looking to grow because I have a full-time responsibility with Prasomnus, so I can't get any busier. I just don't have any more time. But uh, I would say go in there with data, information, and facts. Physicians do not, physicians hate gunky appliances. They hate patient complaints about appliances. They hate side effects. Yep. So going in with science instead of uh, going in with a medical model instead of a dental model. Yeah. Data, yeah. studies, that's very, very, uh, very positive. Uh, I'll say this too. Um, our company was founded by someone who used to build, you know, CPAP and home sleep test referral companies. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have an, what's called an MD marketing kit. And we have a, a pathway that you can follow for that piece. Awesome. So if that is something you're interested, let us know again. Takanos is completely free. We're happy to give you some free tips. We usually give three to five tips on how to do whatever you're trying to accomplish. So sure. Um, Chuck is asking about the night owl. Uh, it's it's not a pulse ox. The night owl is not a pulse ox. 
It is an <laughs> HST. I, I actually do think of it a little bit as a pulse ox on steroids right. uh, because there's a lot of uh, sleep physicians and some insurance companies that still won't look at night owl data and consider it the same as they would some of the other sleep tests. Um, so I like it, but it's 90 bucks. And so if it's 90 bucks and I can use it 14 times with the patient over two or three years for a pay, and I do have about five or six of those, um, that, but I, I can assign that to a patient who lives far away. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did that with a patient who was uh, in Rhode Island and flew in to see me. I've done it with a patient who was up in Northern Michigan who came down to see me because it made sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told them that they had choices of driving back and forth, or I could charge them a hundred bucks for this extra service. And they love that idea. So I charged the cash fee for them. And if they're Medicare, they've got to sign an ABN for that if you're doing it as well. Yeah. Um, what do you think? The only, the only thing on the night owl is it's yeah. cost wise from efficacy testing and titration testing is you're looking at those are in the hundred dollar range per unit. So they can do seven nights of testing. So just 14, I mean, back 14. To them. 14. Okay. So you can do the 14 nights of testing with that. Um, so the cost ends up being comparable, but you are looking at a hundred dollar expense out the door. Versus yep, like a absolutely. Or something. And, it, and it's a one patient use. So it's not like it's a hundred dollars and you get to use it over and over again. It's hundred dollars and you assign it to a patient. Yeah. Uh, Juanita wants to know what I think about Fitbit. I wore a Fitbit for years. <laughs> I, I wore an uh, Apple Watch now. I loved my Fitbit. It really broke my heart to give up my Fitbit, move to the Apple Watch, but my wife finally convinced me. And so I made the change. I really like Fitbit. It's great data, not FDA approved for diagnostic, not FDA approved for what we're doing, but it's a great tool for patients. And, and so are uh, lots of other rings and things that are out there. And for a patient to get over-the-counter information to, to look at and manage and understand trends about their sleep. But if you if we were to think for a second, we're going to walk into a physician's office and show them Fitbit or Apple Watch data and talk about the sleep staging, they will laugh you out of town. So cool. Um, real quick, Hope asks, are you guys getting a, a PDF of the slides? We are sending you Mark's eight slides later tonight. If you do not get them for any reason and you were here please check your spam because we have links in our emails. I don't know, Gmail and whatever, they're weird. When you put a link to a download, it happens that it doesn't like you sometimes. So check your spam. Um, Check that two hours after our conclusion tonight or tomorrow morning. And if you don't get it, feel free to email in. We'll send you the link. And you'll actually send them the PowerPoint, right? Yeah. Yep. The actual PowerPoint, not just They can modify it however they want. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, good. Um, All right. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> let's see is this the appropriate place to ask for links to the studies you're referencing yeah i've got a lot of studies if you write me and and talk about what kinds of information studies you have um my my um narrow focus on that is probably going to be with precision oral appliances and so the precision oral appliances have spectacularly higher efficacy than a lot of the non-precision or custom oral appliances and so um and you can't say um hey, uh, this applies to these devices as well. It's very specific to devices. In fact, uh, the precision device that, that I use a lot of, the Evo from Presomnus, um, will probably be the first oral appliance to ever get a severe clearance indication from the FDA. That's how yeah. high the efficacy is. It's pretty cool. If you want the other studies that are not just precision related, and no, Mark, you have a few, but like that cohort study he mentioned, I've got a copy yeah. of that. Oh yeah, for sure. So, that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we're available yeah. as a resource. HRQ paper, all that stuff that's all out there. That's great stuff. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting question here. I'm not sure I fully understand. What's the efficacy of patients with micronapia not willing to go for surgery and treatment with just neural appliance? I have no idea. No idea. The, the efficacy for patients with micronapia not willing to go for surgery just to with neural appliance. 
Um, we treat patients with smaller jaws, and, and I don't know how small something has to be to be considered micronathic, uh, but uh, it's, I'll tell you what, what we see is um, most of the improvement that we get using oral appliances is because of the mechanical ability to advance the mandible forward, opening the airway in the back. Got that? That has a lot less to do with the size of the jaw. Now, if I can put a smaller device in their mouth, that allows the tongue to come forward with the jaw more easily than a bulky device. So smaller precision devices allow for a lot more tongue space. That said, um, patients with smaller ranges of motion are more difficult for us to treat because I don't have as many millimeters to pull them forward. And if, if I need two or three or four millimeters or five millimeters of advancement to pull that tongue off the wet mucousy substance, and they only have seven or eight millimeters of range, they might not be able to tolerate five or six into a seven uh, millimeter range. And so it's a really, really challenging question to answer. Um, would you not treat them because of that? No, I'd still try to treat them, but I might say, man, you got a really big tongue, you got a really small jaw, um, or you're really fat, or you, I wouldn't say that, your BMI is really high, or you're, you're, you don't have much range, you have a really tall jaw. Uh, those would be things that I would look at and I'd say to the patient that, that probably works against us. Mm -hmm. But just like, just like you would look at any other kind of treatment, I'd still try that med. I'd still try that drug. I'd still try that treatment because it still might work. But, but the primary thing we're looking for is a mechanical advancement. Now, we also know that we might have an effect on arousal threshold, loop gain. We're getting into deeper discussions now and that the precision devices have an anatomical form. Uh, and if we don't go as far forward, we don't stimulate that reflex action, that paradoxical non-responder that we see. That's exciting stuff because maybe... You know, maybe when we're seeing 90, 94%, instead of 65, 75% success, some of that is mechanical. We know that smaller devices, better precision, better bite relationship all, all day. But some of that might be these non-anatomic factors. So that's harder to measure. Yeah. Um, one thing I know you have the, your tiny appliance that you use that, yeah. that has the micro adjustments. So yeah, it's, it's cool tech. Uh, on appliances, we have, uh, he asked DreamTap. First impression, yay or nay? <laughs> so DreamTap is a bulky device in the anterior. And so I'm not a fan of the tap, but I use it on a patient that only has upper and lower anterior teeth because I can't put an Evo uh, with posts in the posterior range in the back of the mouth. So there's a time and a place for different kinds of devices. Yes, somebody who works full-time for Prasomnus said they use other devices. Um, there's patients that freak out about their veneers and don't want acrylic or even the the special Evo uh, material on their veneers and they want something really flimsy. And so then we look at a printed nylon material, uh, but, mm -hmm. but usually, I mean, 39 times out of 40, I can find a device within the Prasomnus family that's precision. And I'd rather use that because we get better efficacy. I, I, I would try to make my decision tree based on what appliance I use based on what devices have the best efficacy so I can get better outcomes rather than which one is pink or which one is blue or which one did the patient think they liked. Um, our responsibility is to chase better outcomes for the patients. Yeah. Um, Abby asked, do we recommend titration test for mild to moderate patients below with an AHI uh, of five and a higher RDI? So when we ask the recommendation questions, it's who would recommend. And if it's Chad and I, uh, Chad and I would want to get paid by the insurance company and insurance companies chase AHI today. It's probably the wrong metric. RDI, ODI, probably better metrics, hypoxic burden, a far superior metric because none of the ODIs, RDIs, or AHIs 
are predictors of cardiovascular events or all-cause mortality. But in the literature, delta heart rate and hypoxic burden are. And mm -hmm. so we're going to see a shift to different metrics and AHI is going to go away. But today, you're not going to get reimbursed from an insurance company. So it, now you're down to a cash patient. And we have those conversations occasionally. Patients AHI is 4.9. Mm -hmm. Their RDI is high. Hardly ever will an insurance company allow you to treat them and pay for it. They'll allow you to treat them, but they're not going to pay for it. And so now it's a conversation with the patient. What do you want? And, uh, and, and we definitely have those conversations all the time. If your if your AHI is high, we call it closing the liability loop. Even if the AHI is 5.1, showing that you did that extra test and the physician saying this was effective uh, mm -hmm. treatment, it's it's nice to have that so that if oh, they yeah, for down sure. the road, you're good to go. Um, real quick, I do want to say we got three questions. I think Mark is open to answering them. Um, yep. They are super clinical and definitely not relevant to the topic tonight. So <laughs> we're going to answer these, but and we're going to cut off and and Jennifer's. Done. If you've got treatment planning questions, feel free to jump in. Otherwise, I'm going to point you back to that coaching call. Uh, we have clinical coaches, dental assistants, and doctors who've done this for years. In fact, one of our coaches has been doing dental medicine for over 15 years as yeah. an assistant. And um, so we've got the team to support these questions, but we want to be on topic for tonight. So, um, Carol, right, I'll, asks, probably, I'll probably use off. What type of exercises are AM positioning? I use milled uh, morning occlusal guides. I give the patient two of them. Um, and then I show them, uh, all the things they need to get at the bite back, explain to them how and why, and we're really proficient at not losing any bites. If they lose one of those, they're supposed to call and order another one and I'll charge them for that. I used to use the thermocurl beads, but I just got lazy. And for, you know, 50 bucks, I can get two of these mugs. And so I like that. Mm -hmm. Any plans for dentist patients? Nope. That's heroics. I don't do it. I tell them we can't. Um, I know people that have good friend of mine, John Carolla brags about one or two cases he does a year, edentulous. High five for him. I'm not going there. That is heroics, <laughs> very chancy, low probability of success. Uh, final question, when would you use posterior excluders for appliance? The answer is never. It would open the vertical dimension, which I do not want to do. If I were going to use a, a discluder, it would be in the anterior for a bruxing patient who had broken a post. And, and if a patient had broken a post, maybe I would widen their corridor a couple of millimeters. We can prescribe that. Maybe I put a two millimeter anterior discluder in, but I don't think I, I can't think of a reason that I'd ever use a posterior discluder on an appliance. So there you go. Those are easy. Those are fast. Yeah, and a you. lot of patients don't brux after you treat their apnea anymore. At that least is I don't. Correct. So. so so people ask me, do you uh, put an anterior discluder on for bruxes? I go, nope. Do you widen uh -huh. a corridor? Nope. Do you use a herbs? Because I go, nope, because most of them don't do that. And give me a hundred bruxers and one or two of them will break a device. Okay. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go in there and make everybody with these fun, funky little design things just because one out of a hundred or two out of a hundred will uh yeah, does their muscle activity and tension decreases the airway stays open? Absolutely, James, 100 uh, percent What do you use to take a bite? George Gage. Okay. We answered two more questions than we were supposed to. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, hey, guys, look, the CE's in the chat there. Um, after we close out the meeting, you're going to be sent over to the CE link. Uh, we are so grateful that you joined us tonight, Mark. We are so grateful. Uh, oh, look, I'm, so, I'm so grateful that that many people wanted to hear me talk about something like this. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. We, we are emailing the, the actual PowerPoint. Um, I know a lot of people don't do that. We're doing that. The PowerPoint will be in your inbox later tonight and the recording Brooke, um, one of our amazing support staff, already put that link in the chat. It'll be on our website. It'll be in your email as well. That page is up. The recording isn't up because we can't post the recording until we close the meeting. So uh, that is our next step. So 
Um, folks, Shout out to you. Earl. Earl from yep. uh, Southfield, Michigan. How you doing? I saw that he's in here. That's kind of cool. Um, Abby so said she's always a, a Murph Doggy Dog webinar attendee. Uh, we also had someone from like really far away. I missed it, but they won the competition. Nova Scotia. Nova um, Scotia. Woo. Yeah. Getting international. Hello, Betty, my friend from the Cleveland Clinic down there. That's cool. Gary yeah. Sesson. There's a lot of good people and a lot of people I know. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. Well, Mark, thank you. Have a wonderful night, everyone. And uh, we will see you on our next webinar. All right. Thanks ever so much. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken number two sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.